So welcome back, everyone, to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. My name is Aaron Bauer, one of the neurology residents here at Yale. Today, we're going to discuss infections of the nervous system just everywhere, not the brain, which is definitely an interesting topic that probably doesn't get as much love as the encephalitides do. So I'm joined today by actually one of my co-residents, Dr. Harry Sutherland, and we'll also have Dr. Muller with us as well. So thank you all for coming. Hi, everybody. I'm Harry. It's my first time on the program, and I'm really excited to be here. Aaron and I are co-chief residents for education. So we identified that we spend a lot of time talking about meningitis and encephalitis, but perhaps less time talking about infections of the rest and the remainder of the nervous system. So we put together this talk to cover all the other elements that are often overlooked. And Harry, uh, can, can we classify you as a first-time, long-time, uh, first-time caller, long-time listener? Uh, to the podcast. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, absolutely. Well, we love having the first time long times. If there's any long time listeners out there who have some great ideas, let us know and, and we can always incorporate something. But we thought this was a really great topic. I think this will be an instant classic and I'm really interested to talk about this topic. And of course, for these, because they're really general neurology topics, none of us is a neuroinfectious disease expert. That's a pretty rare specialty. And even within that specialty, there's often subspecialties and very narrow focuses. And we want to make this broad and really want to talk about what a general neurologist or what a resident or fellow might need to know about infectious diseases of the rest of the nervous system. So we're really excited to talk about this. Of course. And these infectious diseases can look clinically or radiographically like many other different etiologies. So just remember to keep in the back of your head that this could always be vascular, neoplastic, you know, some other etiology, but today we'll be talking just about infections. And we're, we're going to be skipping infections of bones and discs, so no osteomyelitis, no discitis. We're going to be focusing on infections that can affect the nervous system either by direct invasion of neural structures or by compression by, say, like an epidural abscess, um, that we won't explicitly discuss that in great detail, um, by infarction whether by, uh, from infectious vasculitis, or you can even trigger secondary inflammation through para or post-infectious processes, which we'll point out when there are specific uh, viral etiologies that can provoke these kind of post-infectious sequelae. Uh, and just a general note, whenever you're thinking about neuroinfectious disease, always test for HIV because it will change pretty much everything about what you're considering as your agents and your management of the patient. So just make sure that you test for HIV if you think that infection's on your differential. Yeah, I definitely think that's a fantastic point and something that, at least for me, has come up clinically quite a few times and definitely will change how you're viewing the clinical situation and the patient in front of you. So I think just to outline kind of the structure we're going to have for this podcast too, outside of the background that you set up for us, we're going to start in the spinal cord and kind of work our way out. So we'll start with some of the transverse myelitides and then move into specifically like acute flaccid myelitis, moving out to the peripheral nerves of radiculomyelitis, and then the peripheral nerves just in their own right, the junction, and the muscles. Does that sound like a, a good roadmap for everyone? You bet. Let's go through it. All right. So if that's the case, let's get started with some of our transverse myelitides. And I think the first one we wanted to start with was VZV. Yeah. So BZV, I, as I was doing the reading I did to put this talk together, 
it's really arrested by admiration because VCB can really do a whole bunch of things, but it can infect the cord, it can infect the nerve roots, it can cause it, it can go everywhere, it can cause an infectious vasculitis. Essentially, there's the VCB that we're all accustomed to, which is that latent infection in the dorsal root ganglia. It reactivates, it travels anterogradely to cause that herpetic zoster rash. Um, but if it does retrograde travel from the dorsal root ganglia, it can cause infection that way as well, which makes sense. So it can cause a radiculitis because it's already being housed in those dorsal root ganglia. It can cause a myelitis as it continues to ascend, or if it continues to ascend even further, it can cause a meningoencephalitis. It's most common to see VZV affecting the thoracic levels when it's causing that zoster, but you can obviously see VZV lumbosacral plexitis as well, for sure. There is a vascular component, as I alluded to earlier. It causes a necrotizing small vessel vasculitis, but it can also cause a post-viral vasculopathy after you clear your infection of larger caliber cerebral vessels. And so we see that on the stroke service. The MRI findings, at least in the cord, will be that there will be a T2 hyperintense lesion with enhancement. It may be longitudinally extensive. So, of course, that brings up our other differentials of is this NMO? Is this MOG? Is this sarcoid? Is this, you know, these other inflammatory, but not necessarily infectious diseases? The LP is going to show a lymphocytic pleocytosis. The PCR should be positive, but I will just throw in there as a clinical pearl that the antibody testing is actually higher sensitivity, which I think has come up for me on the words a couple of times since being made aware of this, that I, I ordered the HSV PCR, I ordered the VZV PCR, but I didn't as routinely think about adding the immunoglobulins. And so now I, I think about that when it's somebody who I think has it, but I want a little bit greater sensitivity, I'll add those on. The treatment is going to be with acyclovir, IV, 14 to 21 days. Uh, you can add corticosteroids. Uh, and the bonus, since we mentioned that there may be these post-infectious and para-infectious complications, is that this may cause a seropositive NMO spectrum disorder myelitis. Which would definitely make things difficult, especially if you're running into these longitudinally extensive lesions in the spine. Oh, you bet. Kind of like how if you have HSV temporal lobe encephalitis and then you develop NMDA encephalitis, <laughs> um, it can be, can be really cool. Neurology is fun. <laughs> You know, one of the things you often see is a mixed picture, right? And and you're going to talk about this with some of these other disorders. It's not uncommon, for example, to have a radiculomyelitis with a VZV-associated meningitis, that you have dysfunction of both the nerve roots and the spinal cord. And I think we were talking about this this morning with the medical students, but this longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis, LETM, I think is a very useful construct to have in our heads because it does generate a differential diagnosis, including some of the things we're going to talk about today. And in addition, of course, primary inflammatory disorders as well. So uh, really, VZV is one of those diseases of many faces and something to think about, certainly in anyone with an unexplained myelopathy. The other point I would mention, of course, is elderly patients and those on long-term immune suppression may be at higher risk of having this disorder. So our radar is even higher. Our radar antenna is even higher for those with immune deficiencies. And I think just to be explicit for maybe some listeners who may not be as familiar with the concept of longitudinally extensive, how many, sir, well, how many spinal segments would that generally constitute? Well, I would say that I think of it when it's three or more vertebral bodies. Fantastic. So I think 
those were the big points we wanted to cover for VZB. I think the next one that we'll go on to maybe comes up a little bit more clearly with some pediatric patients and also maybe some specific populations in adults, but EBV. And I also know you love this virus when it comes to multiple sclerosis. That's what you're going into for fellowship. Um, but yeah, EBV, I think, comes up as a positive test more often than it is actually what's going on with your patient. So I think that's the first thing I'll say about Epstein-Barr virus. But uh, it's a latent infection in lymphocytes, whereas VZV lays dormant in the dorsal root ganglia. It's unclear if invasions of CNS is immune-mediated versus if that virus directly invades. Uh, but it can trigger an ADEM or a MOG. Of course, MOG can present with ADEM-like presentation. Um, the diagnosis is made with getting those heterophile antibodies that you may remember from the USMLE Step 1. Uh, and you can also test for capsid antigen IgM antibodies. Treatment is going to be largely supportive. You'll use corticosteroids, maybe IVIG. But the note, as I already alluded to before, is that you can get positive EBV DNA PCR in the setting of any other CNS inflammation. And that's because it's in those lymphocytes as a latent infection. So if you traffic those lymphocytes into the CNS because you're you know, attacking your aquaport and four channels, you're going to get a positive DNA PCR for EBV. Yeah, and part of that just comes down to how prolific this virus is in just the general population. I don't know if Dr. Moeller's seen any cases of legitimate EBV infection that he's he's seen over his career? You know, I haven't. I, I don't think that I can think of an EBV myelitis that I've seen, although I've certainly seen EB, EBV PCRs and EBV immunological tests, uh, serology being positive in many cases and for the reasons that you've mentioned. This is very commonly positive in people with primary autoimmune or inflammatory disorders. So I think with that said, it's likely one that you will generally see positive, but in terms of its clinical relevance, as you've kind of mentioned here, it may be a little bit harder to say. Yeah. It's like that weekly positive anti-GAD. <laughs> that um, will follow you around. An another virus that we can talk about is herpes simplex virus. We're very aware of it causing encephalitis. It can also cause a myelitis, but there, there isn't really much that's specific to, or I should say distinct to the, the myelitis you'll see in HSV as opposed to the encephalitis. So we'll just leave it at that. Harry, I don't um, remember if you were going to talk about this later, but HSV2, of course, can cause a lumbosacral radiculopathy. Are you going to talk about that later? Absolutely. Okay. Um, we're going to so talk about that when we get to the uh, nerve root infections. Uh, and then I can make my joke about how it's not molar ray meningitis, it's molar's meningitis. <laughs> very, very good. Well, I, I was really looking forward to that. So we'll leave molar ray <laughs> and Ellsberg for a little later in the podcast. And Banwath, we'll get all of our eponyms out of the way. So the, the next in terms of transverse myelitis that we wanted to talk about was syphilitic uh, meningomyelitis. So everybody knows syphilis is caused by the treponema pallidum uh, spirochete. Early on in the course, in terms of neurosyphilitic manifestations that can cause meningovascular syphilis, where you get arteritic inflammation plus granulomas. And then later on in the course, you can get tabes dorsalis. The early stage, you'll get the tabetic pain manifestation, where you get this lancinating dermatomal pain. I think of kind of like you would get in a, a zoster type of infection. Uh, and then later on is when you'll develop that 
Missouri A taxigate with involvement of the dorsal columns and the typical TB's dorsalis presentation that we're more familiar with for test-taking purposes. The MRI will, again, show a longitudinally extensive T2 hyperintensity, but the more specific feature of the treponema pallidum infection is you'll get peel enhancement. Uh, so you can get that, Aaron, what was it called? The candle flickering sign? Yeah, or, or, or guttering sign. Yes. Yeah, we, we had a long conversation about candle guttering, and depending on how you look it up, it's either flickering, so the peel enhancement on a uh, sagittal sequence on MRI will kind of look like the flickers of a flame. But then I've also heard that maybe it's the guttering of the wax. So maybe there's a listener that can set us straight, but it's it's something about this patchy, longitudinally extensive bits of peel enhancement that provide this irregular superficial pattern of enhancement. And, th- and that seems to be specific to the more acute version of syphilitic myelitis, you know, that the um, the early stage, that menin- meningovascular early stage of syphilis. Honestly, I haven't seen Tabes dorsalis, and I think that's probably because we're much better at identifying syphilis. And of course, it's an eminently treatable disorder if I identified early enough. Since we mentioned that peel enhancement, in terms of infections, it's relatively specific for syphilis. But just to link concepts across disciplines, uh, when I hear peel enhancement in spinal cords, especially if it's more nodular, I will tend to think of sarcoidosis. And you can get that trident side with the subpeel enhancement that goes up the center, just to link concepts. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. It's it's the other thing on the differential appeal enhancement. And of course, both disorders are on the differential diagnosis of longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis, LETM. Yeah, that's why we're talking about this stuff. It's hopefully relevant for somebody out there. So the CSF is going to show the lymphocytic pleocytosis, and your diagnostic test is going to be the VDRL. And your treatment is, as Dr. Moeller alluded to, is very treatable, just two weeks of IV penicillin G. You can actually set people up for outpatient infusion. They'll get this like stretchy ball that compresses over the course of hours. So you can even do this at home. You don't have to be stuck in the hospital tethered to an IV. Definitely a lot of penicillin, though. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To say the least. Much penicillin. (laughs) So I think that's a really good overview of syphilis, particularly the meningovascular components, capes dorsalis, these early stages, delancinating pains, and these relatively specific MRI findings with the the guttering candle sign, the flickering flames, if you will. So I think the next one we wanted to talk to was going to be HIV, which to me has always been a bit of a mystery in terms of what it does in the spine. HIV is uh, another one of those viruses that I revere, along with VZV. It can cause so much, and if it's positive, even if it's not what's acutely going on in your patient, it, as we said before, changes everything. So HIV can cause myelopathy in two different time points. So acutely, you can get an HIV myelitis, which is earlier on in the HIV course. You're going to get inflammatory CSF, T2 changes on your MRI and all that stuff. But you can also get a more subacute to chronic, slowly progressive myelopathy, which is called that HIV-associated vacuolar myelopathy. And in that, you're not going to get the inflammatory CSF. The MRI is variable. You may see some changes. You may not necessarily it does tend to be thoracic predominant. And of course, if you see this, since it is a later manifestation of HIV and you're getting progressive myelopathy, this would count as an AIDS-defining illness. So again, you can see two different time courses for HIV, the acute myelitis or the slowly progressive HIV-associated vacuolar myelopathy. I would say that 
I think there's a relationship in terms of time course in seeing that with the with the later stage progressive myelopathy, this is often appears at the same time as HIV associated cognitive changes or cent- uh, or brain neurodegeneration that you sometimes see with chronic untreated HIV as well. So these these sometimes appear together. The next infection that we should talk about would be you know, the hot new one that we're all talking about, which is SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2 can cause a necrotizing myelitis. We're still understanding more and more about this disease entity. So not a whole lot to talk about on this podcast, but just know that, that is an entity that you could you know potentially throw out and impress your attendings on the wards. Other infectious agents we could talk about here are HTLV-1. So HTLV-1 can cause HTLV-1-associated myelopathy or HAM, and you may also see this as TSP or tropical spastic paraparesis. Like the HIV-associated vacuolar myelopathy we just discussed, this is going to be a more subacute to chronic presentation. So when you're thinking of somebody who has a, an infection of the spine, but it's not an acute myelitis, you're going to be thinking of the HIV and HTLV-1. So the transmission of HTLV-1 may be sexual, but it can also be vertical from mother to child. It infects the microvascular endothelial cells, and it causes this slowly progressive proximal to distal spastic paraparesis. I say paraparesis because it's typically in the thoracic cord. You'll get a low lumbar pain. You'll get neuropathic pain in the legs. And it typically is latent for several years before we start manifesting neurologic disease, anywhere between four months to 30 years after infection, according to the source you look at. But the typical age of onset is usually in the fifth decade of life. Uh, of life. The acute inflammatory phase is followed by that chronic neurodegenerative phase. And it does have some tropism that we should mention here. It does tend to have a predilection for the lateral columns, which is why it'll cause that spastic paraparesis rather than a flaccid myelitis or rather than an ataxic gait. And it affects those lateral columns much more so than the dorsal columns or the anterior forms. The MRI may show T2 hyperintense lesions, plus or minus enhancement, but you're usually going to be getting this MRI later in the course when they're manifesting their disease and you'll see atrophy of the cord. The CSF will be variable, may or may not be inflammatory, but you should be able to detect antibodies to HTLV-1. Treatment is largely supportive with corticosteroids, but there are ongoing clinical trials looking at magamolizumab, which is an anti-CCR4, which may show some benefit for people with tropical spastic paraparesis. Maybe one question I've had, and maybe either you or Dr. Muller can clarify, do they have to be from the tropics? I think the short answer is no. But, you know, not being the world's expert in this, I think there are endemic areas, certainly within the Caribbean and other tropical regions. I think there were cases in Japan, so in that part of Asia. I think there are endemic areas in the Middle East. So I think there are multiple regions where HDLV1 is uh, seen more frequently. So the, the short answer is yes. I'm sure my list of endemic areas is not complete. Feel like it's always good just to have a bit of a thought about when your radar should go up for this. But I think some of the points that you made, Harry, regarding the kind of progressive proximal greater than distal spastic paraparesis, kind of acute inflammatory phase into the chronic neurodegenerative phase, more lateral column involvement, and then that atrophy that you may see later on MRI are all exceptionally good points. And then the diagnosis with the antibodies. 
and some of this more experimental treatments in the pipeline. This presentation sort of has a little bit of that flavor that you sometimes see in patients with hereditary spastic paraparesis, you know, the slowly progressive paraparesis with a prominent motor and spasticity component. And I, I think HDLV1 should be on your differential diagnosis when you see that presentation, regardless of where the patient is from. It, it's possible anywhere, even though there are the endemic regions include the regions I mentioned and probably a few others. I guess one question I kind of had as I was reading about HTLV1 is it has always been on my routine panel of tests I send when I see someone who has a cord lesion and we're working up MS versus MS mimics. And should it be? Because it seems like the presentation clinically doesn't really match with most of my MS patients that I see coming into the ED with relatively acute lower extremity weakness. Perhaps with primary progressive, which has a predominant myelopathy to it, that may be more progressive and honestly follow more of a neurodegenerative course. I think that would probably be my takeaway from it. It's an open open question. I think for our listeners, Certainly, the much more typical presentation is subacute. It's this is a very very slowly progressive process. I think pretty unlikely in the acute setting, although I'm sure there are exceptions. I think the next thing we're going to talk about is going to be toxoplasmosis. Do you think you can walk us through that one at least in terms of these transverse myelitides? You bet. It's going to be pretty like what you see when you have cortically based uh, lesions or at least cerebrally based lesions. Typically, if you're going to have spinal lesions, you're also going to have brain lesions. So it'd be very atypical for you to see uh, someone who has a say, paraparesis, but they have no intracranial lesions. Again, like with the brain lesions, it's going to be when your CD4 count falls below 100. It'll cause a subacute to chronic and usually thoracic myelopathy. The CSF you're going to have a mild pleocytosis, but the uh, standout features, they're going to be more mononuclear than lymphocytic. The sites are going to predominate most of this talk, but these are PMNs, and you'll have PCR positivity. The treatment is going to be with sulfadiazine and pyrimethamine for six weeks, plus or minus corticosteroids if there's significant perilesional edema. And if there's an allergy, you can always use Bactrim as an alternative or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Not sure if I'm allowed to use brand names here. <laughs> That's definitely fair. Um, but I think this will definitely be one that'll be taken in context of somebody with profound immunologic disease with really low CD4 counts as a means to finding illness and likely would probably have some more systemic and those classic ring enhancing lesions cortically as well. Will definitely be a good one to keep in mind and particularly remembering the treatment, which does come up not infrequently on testing. Because it's different. Everything else has been largely supportive. Agreed. Except for recyclovir. Don't forget recyclovir. Never. <laughs> All right. So I think those were the big transverse myelitides that we wanted to cover. And I think the next big group that we wanted to break down was going to be the acute flaccid myelitides. So when you're seeing somebody, and this is why we structured our talk this way, but when you're seeing somebody who has spinal cord pathology, phenotypically, there's a big difference between an acute flaccid myelitis versus a more transverse myelitis. So what follows is going to be a discussion of the more acute flaccid myelitides. So first up is polio, which is the archetypal acute flaccid myelitis. It's endemic to Afghanistan and Pakistan. Until recently, it was also present in Nigeria. The presentation is going to be weakness, muscle pain. It can even cause meningitis for polio. The interesting thing is that because it's a viral infection, you may think that it's going to be symmetric, but the presentation tends to be asymmetric for poliovirus, starting off at a monoparasis and may eventually progress to a quadriparasis. On MRI, you will get T2 hyperintensities in the gray matter, and so that can look kind of like an owl eyes. You'll see that 
buzzword more often in stroke with the anterior spinal cord syndrome because those are the more metabolically active areas. But if you see two to hyperintensity affecting the anterior horns, it's going to look like owl eyes in the board. The CSF is going to be variable, and the diagnosis is actually best made with PCR of the stool and nasopharynx rather than of CSF or blood. Yeah, definitely a very classic syndrome within neurology, and one that, for the most part, luckily had been on the de- you know decrease, but as you kind of alluded to, maybe something to keep in mind a little bit more regularly nowadays. And I do think one of the things regarding testing that may be very important to keep in mind is that it isn't the CSF, as you said, it will be the, the stool and from the nasopharynx. So I think- one thing I'll, I'll say about poliomyelitis is that we still encounter patients in older age groups who grew up in North America when polio was endemic here before effective vaccination programs. And it's always helpful for me to remember about this often being one limb or the monoparasis because most of the patients I've encountered with the post-polio syndrome will have one weak limb. Uh, that's a very common manifestation that I've I've seen. And sometimes over time, as as they get older, they might notice more weakness and spasticity as probably they're starting to decompensate a little bit in the, in the context of post-polio syndrome. So we, we often see people decades later who were exposed to polio in like the 1960s, uh, 1950s and 1960s. Uh, so right. next up is going to be the more modern day polio viruses as I think of them. Uh, at least in our practice in New Haven, Connecticut. But when you see a child with acute flaccid myelitis, so you should be thinking of enterovirus, uh, specifically the D68 and the A71 serotypes. So like I said, it's more common in children. About 50% of them are going to have skin lesions that are going to look like hand, foot, and mouth disease. And diagnostic uh, workup can be really frustratingly difficult for these people. Um, so the CSF-PCR is positive in only a fifth of cases. The rectal and oropharyngeal samples may have higher sensitivity, but from the reading I did, it looks like the most reliable way to make a diagnosis of enteroviral poliomyelitis is just by knowing that there are cases going around in the community rather than in this specific individual. The treatment's going to be with IVIG or corticosteroids, though both are off-label. And you may also see tropism for the brainstem in case uh, you get any kind of bulbar signs in someone who also has an acute flaccid myelitis in, in, in children. For adults, I'll think more commonly of West Nile virus. So this is going to be carried by the Culex mosquito. It tends to have infections coming in the summer and early fall, as you would expect. It infects those microvascular endothelial cells. The MRI is going to show you, again, T2 hyperintensity in those anterior horns. The CSF may early on show a neutrophilic pleocytosis, but then with time will shift to that more typical lymphocytic pleocytosis. The IgM is going to be sensitive and specific more so than the PCR is. So this is another one kind of like with VZB. If you want that sensitivity, and in this case, also specificity, the antibodies are better than the PCR. Treatment's going to be with IVIG, again, off-label. And just keep an eye out for a meningoencephalitis accompanying your myelitis for people who have West Nile. It can cause dystonia, tremor, all these all kind of extra pyramidal symptoms because there's a specific tropism for the deep gray structures. The uh, comments I'd make about West Nile, because we see this, I think, in an area where there's lots of mosquitoes, would be the extremes of age, very young and very old, immune suppressed patients. Those are the ones that are more likely to have neurological manifestations. And this high fever is a real thing, right? We often see very high fever associated with West Nile myelitis or or West Nile meningoencephalitis. Every patient of the small number I've seen with West Nile 
infection and neurological manifestations has had ex- an extremely high fever. No, thank you for that extra clarification clinically. It's definitely one that has come up within our hospital a few times at this point. Another one that's come up a couple of times, but more frequently on differentials because it's fun to talk about, is another arbovirus, but Velocin virus. It's carried by ticks in the late spring and midfall. The diagnosis is going to be made with luck, but the CSF-PCR has low sensitivity. And then for specificity, you can try the IgM ELISA in the blood or, or CSF, but it can be difficult to diagnose and you have to report it uh, and send labs out to different labs across the country. Yeah, and these patients are usually pretty systemically ill outside of just myelitic symptoms as well. You bet. And perhaps maybe the last one we want to talk about, at least in terms of a possible like acute flaccid myelitic picture, but I guess be rabies, right? Yeah, it can. It more commonly causes that encephalitis and you'll get your negri bodies, but you can also get paralytic rabies, usually one to three months after the animal bite. The diagnosis is with PCR, and like with the encephalitis form, there is no cure. So this is going to be a universally fatal disease. And then just to do brief lip service to the other viruses that can cause a poliomyelitis, you can get Coxsackie, Echovirus, St. Louis encephalitis, Japanese encephalitis, uh, a couple others. But really, many of your transmissible seasonal especially arboviruses, uh, can cause a poliomyelitis. Fantastic. I think hitting on those are all wonderful. Going through polio, enterovirus D68, A71, particularly in children, West Nile, Powassan, and rabies, I think are probably, in terms of it, definitely testable pathophysiologies for this acute flaccid myelitis. And I think big picture, definitely think about the testing we're sending because a lot of these may not necessarily be your classic CSF testing definitely a lot of stool, which we don't necessarily think of, particularly as neurologists. I will say the Negri bodies do show up in images on examinations, perhaps more, perhaps more often than we see them clinically. And it's just classically those intracytoplasmic conclusions in pyramidal cells would be the classes. But you can see them in other in other types of cells, but usually classically when you see this pyramidal, the brain cells with these intracytoplasmic conclusions and there's an infectious syndrome, then you could think about rabies and, and negri bodies as a possibility. All right. So I think that covers up the first big buckets. The rest of them are going to be slightly shorter, focusing more on myeloreticulitis, then going on to the peripheral nerves, neuromuscular junction, and the muscle. So Harry, do you think you can tell us about some of these myeloreticulitides? It's probably the hardest thing I'm going to be saying today. <laughs> <laughs> would love to. Let's uh, get a little bit more peripheral here, go out to the nerve roots. So as we started talking about a little bit earlier, HSV2, you can see affecting the nerve roots, would be the first one we can talk about on this list. So it lies dormant in the sacral dorsal root ganglia. You know, it's a herpes virus. They love to hang out in these DRGs. You can get retrograde migration to the cauda, the conus, and even the lower cord in some patients. It can cause a necrotizing myelitis of both white and gray matter. Your CSF is going to show a typical lymphocytic pleocytosis. You should have PCR positivity to HSV, and then your lab may uh, report out specifically if it's HSV 1 versus 2. If you see nerve root involvement, though, it's going to be way more likely to be HSV 2. For MRI, you'll see signal change, maybe in the cord if you have involvement, but you'll see enlargement of the lower cord as well as smooth nerve root enhancement. So that smooth part of the nerve root enhancement is key because if you see nodular enhancement, there's a whole other list of things to be considering. Your treatment's going to be with acyclovir. It can be IV if you're immunocompromised, but otherwise it can be PO, plus or minus steroids. I will say epinemolar 
you can see Ellsberg syndrome with this or with any other infectious cause of a lumbosacral myeloradiculitis. But Ellsberg syndrome is a rapidly progressive lumbosacral myeloradiculitis causing acute urinary retention, constipation, and saddle sensory disturbance. I think of it kind of as an infectious cauda equina syndrome. I don't know if that's fair to say, Dr. Muller. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think it's on the differential of a cauda equina syndrome. Classically HSV2, but as you said, can be caused by other viruses, HSV1 and even cytomegalovirus, as I think you mentioned. Yeah, those would be the big three. So with that segue, we can talk about cytomegalovirus. Uh, so CMV lies latent in mononuclear cells. It'll reactivate an immunocompromise when your CD4 count falls below 100. You will get a painful ascending lumbosacral myeloradiculitis. Uh, you'll get neutrophilic or lymphocytic pleocytosis, elevated protein, low glucose, uh, and the PCR should be positive. Treatment for this is going to be with either IV gancyclovir or with foscarnet. Um, but you can do PO valgancyclovir if there's less severe disability. Yeah, and I think that's a good one. I'm not particularly great with infectious disease, just as a kind of note. So remembering that there are other cyclovirs that are specifically used for CMB is always a good reminder. So thank you for that. Maybe we can talk about one of our other favorite spirochetes, Lyme. Oh boy, we in Connecticut love Lyme disease. That's caused by another spirochete, Borrelia burgdorferi. It can cause a painful meningoradiculitis plus or minus intramedullary invasion. It's typically going to be seen a few weeks after that tick bite. The MRI is going to show enhancement of those affected nerve roots. Your CSF should show a lymphocytic pleocytosis, but it may be monocytic, so just keep that in mind. You should see an elevated protein, and the glucose should be normal. Your diagnosis is going to be peripherally, because Lyme is a systemic infection. You'll see a serum ELISA positive. You'll confirm with the Western blot. And then for CSF testing, you can get an IgG index to see how much neural invasion there is. The treatment is going to be with PO doxycycline, but if you get intraparenchymal disease, you should be using IV ceftriaxone. And I think that's that's a point to make that I think I remember seeing, or I just misremembered studying for the earlier USMLEs, like, oh, if you see like Lyme and brain structures, it's always IV ceftriaxone. And that's not the case. It's only if you have intraparenchymal disease that you need IV ceftriaxone. Eponym alert. Just bringing this one up, you can get Banworth syndrome, which is this painful radiculitis that you get from Lyme directly invading your, your spinal nerve roots. If it's that combined with a facial palsy, that would be the Banworth syndrome. For whatever reason, it tends to be more prominent in Europe. Yeah, I can't imagine why that would be the case. I've heard that too, but there you go. And one really important important point, perhaps clinically, there is a hot debate about eponyms and their utility. But if you see that combination of facial paresis and, and sort of a painful limb, then Lyme should be very high on your list. And very importantly, there's some emerging data to suggest that treating isolated facial paresis that happens to be associated with Lyme with corticosteroids can be associated with worse outcomes. So you really have to have this high on your radar and think about the possibility of Lyme and seeing that radiculitis can sometimes make the difference and key you in to this not being a straightforward Bell's palsy. So I think moving on, it's probably kind of a bit of an interesting one, maybe one that we don't see as commonly in the U.S., but schistosomiasis. Oh, yeah. These are fun. Who doesn't love eggs? But <laughs> typically, it's going to be caused by the Mansoni species of schistosoma. So you get these cercarii that penetrate the skin, they develop into worms, and then they go through this interesting life cycle where so they penetrate the skin. They then mate in your blood vessels, the eggs lodge in the tissues, and then you get this retrograde venous flow 
through the Batson's plexus that often comes up clinically when we talk about someone having an intra-abdominal or pelvic malignancy and then they get flow of those neoplastic cells. Uh, but this is going to be eggs that are flowing into your uh, spinal canal. Uh, so it can cause venous congestion and granulomatous inflammation of the caudal cord or of the cauda equina. Your MRI is going to show expansion of the conus or cord and enhancement of the medulla of the spinal cord, the meninges, the nerve roots, really wherever they land. As you would expect, because these are parasites, your leukocytes that you're going to be seeing are going to be predominantly eosinophils, the red ones. <laughs> and you should be seeing eggs in the stool and urine. Your treatment is going to be with prosequantil as well as corticosteroids. And if you need to, because you know, as we said, it can cause venous congestion and granulomatous inflammation, you can even uh, offer decompressive surgery for somebody who needs it. This is really the stuff of a horror movie, really, the more you describe it, Harry. Yeah, it definitely sticks with you. I still remember like maybe a decade ago, I was listening to NPR Science Friday and they were talking about schistosoma and they used this phrase, blood flukes mating in your bloodstream forever <laughs> because they apparently pair bond according to what I can recall from 10 years ago. But yeah, it sticks with you. It's how, how romantic. <laughs> how romantic. <laughs> No, it definitely is a wonderful thing to describe for our particularly visual learners. They can picture that all day then. But I will say maybe comparing and contrasting with HSV, definitely the eosinophilia will be very dramatically different, but also this more nodular enhancement compared to the smooth enhancement you were perhaps talking about earlier. I think that's a point worth making. And then naturally, there are a lot of fungi. Maybe we can just list a few of them to consider. Sure. So the uh, the ones that have specific territories, um, so the histoplasma, blastomyces, you can also get aspergillus causing a necrotizing myelitis as well. I think those are at least good to mention and keep on the radar. But I think the main ones being HSV2, CMV, particularly in our immunocompromised patients, the Lyme, given our geographic situation and the remembering of Banworth syndrome, and then all the wonderfulness that is schistosomiasis. I believe there was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, about 10 or 15 years ago, there was an issue with some contaminated corticosteroids that were being used for epidural injections for pain. And there was an outbreak of aspergillus-associated uh, radiculomyelitis and myeloradiculitis from that. So I, I, I think that usually there's a reason that this would happen. And, and I can remember that being a case. Now that we've talked about myeloradiculitis, let's talk a little bit more peripherally, and maybe we can briefly touch on cranial neuropathies. Oh, you bet. For, for cranial neuropathies, I think what comes to mind for most people most readily is facial droop. Uh, so just a quick note on facial droop. 50% is going to be idiopathic if you send all the infectious labs. But that also means that 50% are not idiopathic. Of the ones that are infectious, about 25% of cases of facial droop are going to be infectious. And of those, about half are going to be caused by Lyme disease. A quarter of infectious facial droops are going to be by VZV, about 10 to 15% by HSV. If you're seeing somebody in the ED, it's probably idiopathic, but remember, a quarter are infections and half of those are Lyme. Other agents that may cause cranial neuropathies are leprosy, which we'll touch on later because it can cause a peripheral neuropathy elsewhere in the body. Diphtheria, which I think we have a slide on here. So diphtheria is caused by the bacteria and diphtheriae bacteria. The initial infection is, as you remember, you get this flu-like symptom, You'll get cervical lymphadenopathy, exudative pharyngitis. And then about three weeks later, you'll start to get this biphasic neuropathy. Uh, so the two phases are first, you get 
a craniofacial stage. That's the term for it, where you get typically more so the lower cranial nerves affected more than the upper cranial nerves. And this craniofacial stage is going to be followed by diffuse limb weakness. The pathophys- uh, pathophysiologic basis for this is you get an exotoxin that invades your Schwann cells to inhibit synthesis of myelin proteolipid and myelin basic protein. Your diagnosis is going to be with throat culture, and then you're testing if you wanted to do EMG and LP. It's going to have a very similar appearance to Guillain-Barre syndrome. Treatment is going to be with antitoxin as well as antibiotics, and the uh, cryobacterium tends to respond to it. You need the macrolides and maybe some other stuff, but you know, I'm a brain doctor. Yeah, and then I guess maybe some other things to keep in mind, at least of these cranial neuropathies, would be cryptococcus, tuberculosis, syphilis. So some of these more basal or meningitic processes that maybe we won't spend as much time on. And botulism, but we'll talk about the NMJ later because that's even more peripheral. So how about we talk a little bit about the peripheral nerves then? So things that may lead to like a mononeuropathy or mononeuropathy multiplex. You bet. Uh, So when you're seeing one particular nerve or several discrete nerves, not like a length-dependent process per se, there's going to be a differential. The first of which we can talk about would be leprosy. So leprosy is caused by the acid fast bacillus, mycobacterium leprae. It's going to be found in armadillos. Anyway, these bacilli are going to invade and then modify the Schwann cells, causing inflammation. And that inflammation will manifest in the nerves as enlarged palpable nerves. So that's going to be the buzzword for these nerves being palpable. The nerve injury does tend to be exonal or demyelinated or mixed. And you'll get these characteristic skin changes that should really clue you into the diagnosis. Uh, So in addition to the palpable nerves, you'll get hypopigmented or erythematous patches or plaques versus nodular, ulcerated, or edematous lesions. These skin lesions are going to be associated with anesthesia. And then you'll also see maybe a lionine facies, which is this characteristic appearance of getting thickened skin, the loss of eyebrows, and the saddle nose. Perhaps our listeners can take a second and look on Google or Bing images for the lionine facies. Um, Your diagnosis is going to be made with either a skin or nerve biopsy showing these bacilli, and treatment is going to be with dapsone or rifampin for 6 to 24 months. Yeah, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, there may be a bit of a predilection to areas that are colder in the body. Uh, That's right. Yeah. So a little bit further out on your extremities, perhaps. The thing I remembered was nose, ears, digits, things like that. So next up, these are going to be more of a mononeuropathy multiplex type of picture, hepatitis B and C. So both are associated with vasculitis. HBV is associated with polyarteritis nodosa. Polyarteritis nodosa can also be caused by hepatitis C. C, as well as by HIV, but hepatitis B is much more common. And hepatitis C is effect, is associated with painful neuropathy, but with mixed cryoglobulinemia, vasculitis. And then you'll treat the hepatitis C and add plus or minus rituximab for the cryoglobulinemia. Yeah, this is definitely one that I've kind of incorporated into my screening for vasculitis, particularly with patients who coming with these atypical neuropathies. So I think now that we've worked our way out through the peripheral nerves, we can take a brief pit stop at the neuromuscular junction, which should only really be two entities, but I think definitely are some interesting ones. Yeah, absolutely. So you may see the buzz terms motor nerve hyperexcitability, and there are some paraneoplastic syndromes that you also get peripheral nerve hyperexcitability, but we're going to only be talking about infectious causes. This is going to be tetanus. Clinically, I guess what we should say when you walk in the room is you're going to see a patient who's rigid and maybe having spasms. They're going to have trismus, which is that dysphonia that they're going to get. You may get a 
a positive spatula test. I don't know why you would test this with a spatula, but what that is, is if they're going to have their mouth open, and if you were to touch their uvula, they would get this reflex contraction and locking of the jaw. They may get rhesus sardonicus, which is another thing that you can pause and take a look at on your preferred uh, search entity for images, as well as epistotonus, epistotonus being that arched back and uh, rigid everywhere. So the pathophys for tetanus is going to be toxin-mediated. You get the toxin produced by Clostridium tetani. It gets endocytosed at the axon terminal and by retrograde transport is brought into the neuron from the wound to the spine and even to the brain stem motor neuron. And it ultimately inhibits inhibitory neurotransmission. Symptom onset is going to be about seven to 10 days after the wound. It's going to be a little bit longer if that wound is very far because it has to go further up the axon. And recovery is usually within a month, uh, which can be a very long time for someone to have epistotonus and rhesus sardonicus. If you did an EMG on somebody uh, who has active tetanus, you're going to see continuous firing of the motor units, but the motor units are going to be normal. And it's going to be continuous firing of both agonist and antagonist muscles working in opposition of each other. Treatment is going to be with immunoglobulin directed against uh, the tetanus toxin. This uh, is a terrible disease and a great reason to get your shots. Definitely one that is easily avoidable at this day and age, as long as the appropriate steps are taken. Now, we don't want to mess around with tetanus here. Absolutely not. And I would say that we definitely don't want to mess around with the other neuromuscular junction disease, or at least infectious disease that we wanted to cover, and that would be botulism. Yeah, don't mess around with botulism, but there are a lot of ways to mess around with it. We'll get into etiologies in just a second. But this is going to be another toxin-mediated syndrome. It's from Clostridium botulinum, uh, another Clostridium species. It prevents the snare complex uh, from promoting vesicular fusion. So you don't get release of those neurotransmitters at the synapse. You're going to get acute bulbar as well as respiratory and a descending pattern of limb weakness, maybe some autonomic neuropathic findings as well. And those etiologies that we hinted at. So most cases are going to be infantile botulism, which is classically, especially on your test, going to be an infant who ingests spores of honey, which will have clostridium botulinum in them, and it will then produce the toxin inside the host. For adults... Our most common causes are going to be either foodborne, where you ingest preformed toxin, not the Clostridium botulinum itself, but the toxin, usually in home canned goods is going to be the way it's going to appear on your test, or it can also enter through a wound, uh, and then you get endocytosis, transport. The last two ways you can get botulism would be either uh, intestinal colonization, especially after antibiotic use, or iatrogenic if we're using Botox injections to treat dystonia or these other things. Your EMG is going to show reduced CMAP amplitudes because you know, you're not releasing as much acetylcholine at those synapses. You may get either myopathic or normal motor unit action potentials. You may possibly see some increments as you get more and more recruitment. You may be able to fuse some of your vesicles, so you may get a little bit increased motor response as you record your, on your EMG. Treatment is going to be uh, with antitoxin, which is a heptavalent botulinum antitoxin in adults. And then for infants, again, most of these causes, uh, cases, again, are going to be infantile botulism. It's going to be IgG against botulism. Yeah, definitely one of uh, our favorite medications for a lot of spasticity and migraine. So definitely something we see all the time, but always have to remember that it is indeed an infectious disease at heart, toxin-mediated process. So I think that was a great little review of it. And then I think the last steps that we wanted to cover was just 
the infectious myocytides. And I think really one that is the most relevant, perhaps, that may be testable would be trichinosis. Yeah, absolutely. So coming to the very end of our neuroaxis, thanks for bearing with us as we head to the end of the rails here. So infections of the muscle trichinosis is caused by the nematodal infection. You'll get an infection with trichinella spiralis, which is going to be found in undercooked pork. You generally get GI discomfort followed by myalgias as these lodge in your muscles and generalized weakness within one to two weeks. You can also see periorbital and facial edema, um, but the diagnosis is going to be made with laboratory testing. So you're going to get an elevated CK, which obviously isn't specific, but it's part of the picture along with eosinophils, which is going to be one of the more hallmark features. And you can also get an ELISA followed by Western block confirmatory testing for immune globulins directed against those trichinella nematodes. X-rays can show calcification in the muscles, which is something I think I find really interesting. I saw that on an episode of House before medical school. I was like, if you get a muscle biopsy of these folks, you'll see cellular infiltrates, larvae, maybe cysts. Treatment is going to be with albendazole preferentially. Um, but if there's an allergy rather than albendazole, you can also turn to mebendazole and prednisone. But just note that it may not eliminate any already encapsulated trichinella because these anti-infectious agents don't necessarily, don't necessarily penetrate the cysts that they form. So just know that you may still have some of those calcified larvae hiding out in your muscles. And maybe just briefly, are there any other big buckets that we should consider, at least for the myopathic infections? Yeah. So I think probably the most common thing you're going to see in terms of inflammation of muscles when it comes to infections is going to be influenza. So myalgia is prominent in influenza, and that's because you get direct infection of the muscles themselves. And you can also get bacterial abscesses. Usually it's caused by a transient bacteremia seeding an already injured muscle. So you know, picture somebody who's working hard at the construction site, they're injuring their muscles a little bit because of how hard they're working, and then they get a cut, you get a transient bacteremia, seeds that muscle, and then you can diagnose that by getting a muscle MRI. And it's usually going to be at the larger muscles, so your thighs, your biceps. I think we've reached the end of this. I think we've made it to the muscle. We definitely <laughs> covered a lot of different infections going from the spinal cord out through the peripheral nerves to the neuromuscular junction and then the muscle, even covering a little bit of the facial nerves, you know, the cranial nerves specifically. So I want to thank you, Harry, for coming on and going through this and sharing all the work that you did. And I'd also like to thank Dr. Muller for being our guiding hand as always. Harry, it was uh, wonderful to have you. I don't think any of us is an expert, but there are very few experts on this. Because these most of these are uncommon infections or uncommon manifestations of infections, but this is why we need general neurologists in the world, right? We need to be able to hold these possibilities in our minds and have some of these hints to trigger our thoughts about what infection somebody has. It's going to change their outcome, and, and identifying these early and understanding some of the distinctions is huge. So thanks again, Harry. This was a great topic, endlessly fascinating, and mildly to moderately terrifying. Thanks so much for inviting me. This has been really fun uh, sharing some knowledge and some terror with everybody. <laughs> These are the endlessly optimistic and reassuring ends that we like here on the podcast. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. 